Acts chapter 9, ah, sorry, 32 to 43. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In these days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please, come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the windows stood beside Sorry, all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. Let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and uh, go to Acts 9, that text I was just read. If you're using uh, a Bible that you picked up on the way in here, it's page 918. Get all situated here. So, as we've been going through this uh, study, uh, the last chapter was uh, pretty exciting, uh, or the last part of this chapter, the first part of chapter 9, we have uh, Saul, his conversion. Uh, we know that he's later on going to be known as the Apostle Paul, and so we, this is a, a pivotal point in history, in church history particularly. And uh, then we see how he escaped to uh, from Damascus to Jerusalem. And then in this chapter, uh, Luke, who's writing this book for us, uh, all of a sudden bounces back to Peter. And so you may say, well, why is he doing that? Well, simply put, the reason why he bounces back to Peter here is because chapter 10 comes after chapter 9. All right. <laughs> all right. So he's setting this up for what's going to happen in chapter 10. Okay, and so what he's saying is, is he says, okay, there's going to be some major things happening in chapter 10, and you, you know, Theophilus, who he's writing to, okay, remember Luke wrote the gospel, and now he's writing Acts, the same person, Theophilus, he's saying, you have confidence, you can have confidence in Jesus Christ, you have confidence in Christianity, okay, and I'm going to tell you why, and so he writes the gospels, and now he's writing Acts, and so he's, he's, he's walking Theophilus through this of why we can have full confidence in Jesus Christ and in the gospel, okay? And so he brings back to, to Peter here because he knows that uh, there's going to be a significant event in chapter 10 that we need to make sure that we can have confidence that Peter is, is someone we can trust here. So, so he brings in a couple of these stories here about what Peter had done in his ministry there. 
As one person who I was reading this week said this, it's vitally important to show how the church came to accept the Gentiles as true Christians before, before Paul's missionary journeys can be properly understood. That's what's going to happen in chapter 10. And so by seeing a couple of these miracles that, uh, that Peter does, uh, we're going to see that, that this is a, a, a great confidence that we can have uh, in what's going to happen in chapter 10. So let me just show you some maps there. You have it on your handout here. So uh, the, this is the, the arrows there to show Philip and uh, Peter's journey. Of course, we have Jerusalem right there. This is right just to the, uh, the side of the Dead Sea there. And so that's Jerusalem, and that's where uh, everything was starting. Uh, this is where uh, they met in the upper room in Acts chapter 1, and the Holy Spirit came down. Uh, so that happened in Jerusalem, and we know that Jesus said, remember in chapter 1, verse 8 of our text, uh, of, of our book here in Acts, he says, you will be witnesses to me in both Jerusalem and Judea, and then in Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth, okay? And so Jerusalem is there. You can see on the map Judea and Samaria. Those are the regions, okay? We've already seen how the gospel's been growing. The circle of the gospel's been growing here. In our text today, we're gonna, we were introduced to a couple cities here of Lydda and then Joppa, okay? Lydda is uh, uh, where the modern-day international airport is, in case you're interested. If you've ever flown into Israel, you would have flown into what at that time was known as Lydda, but now is uh, known by a different title. Uh, but these are the two cities that we see here, and the, the distance between the two, between Lydda and Joppa, is about 11 miles, okay? Just, just so you kind of get an idea of the lay of the land there a little bit. But why I'm showing you this, I'm showing the, geographic, the geographical expansion of the gospel. And so as Acts unfolds, the circle of the gospel of Jesus Christ increases. Now, I don't know if you noticed this or not, and this is all introductory here, so I don't know if you noticed this or not, but um, it says here, where was it, in verse 35, it says, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. That word turned means a turning about or a change of life. It's more than just an intellectual understanding of something. It's a, it's a complete change of life direction here to know about face, if you will. And then we saw over here in verse 42 that in Joppa, many believed in the Lord. And so what is happening here is Luke is again showing the expansion of the gospel. And you can see this on the map here. And God never ceases to show his power, though, through Jesus Christ. And that's what we're seeing happen in the book of Acts. And here's how we want to center our discussion on this text today, though, is that most often... God uses ordinary or common means, okay, to expand the gospel. But sometimes there are examples where he uses unusual or uncommon means. And so what we're going to do today is look at this text of how he uses both the common and the uncommon means to expand his gospel, okay? So we've read the text. I've laid the ground. Let me just stop and ask God's, God's enabling grace, okay? Let's pray. Father, I just pray now. I pray that as I speak from this text, I would speak in a way that's accurate to the text, and I pray that it would be helpful, it would be relevant. I pray that your spirit would guide us in our thinking, remove distractions, help us to see Christ in all of his glory today. May we be amazed at the power of Jesus Christ throughout history and even up to today. And only your spirit can do this for us. 
For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. All right. Both the common and the uncommon. First of all, we're going to look at from this text, Jesus' power through common means, and that's people. I don't know if you noticed that as Josh was reading the text for us today, that there was a lot of different people that were popping up. And so what I want to do today is just going to walk us through that and see how we can see God's power on display. First, there is Aeneas, all right? There is Aeneas. We don't know much about him. He's only mentioned here in the text. This is the only time he pops up in the Bible that I'm aware of. Uh, we, we do know that he was not born paralyzed, okay? And so that, that's what he's known for here is he was someone who was born paralyzed, but, but Luke records that it was for eight years he was, he was paralyzed, and this was a grown man, and so we know that he was not born paralyzed. This was someone who he would have, um, uh, he, he would have been uh, someone who would have known what it was like to run. He would have, been, he would have known what it was like to, to walk and to jump and to leap and, and all that stuff, but, but for some reason, that was taken away from him, and, and we don't know how. We, we don't know anything about it. We don't know uh, if it was an accident uh, that uh, maybe he fell while he was working. We don't know if it was a disease, something like tuberculosis. We, we, we don't know anything. We, we just know that for the last eight years of his life, eight years, okay? Eight years. Eight years for his life, he was not able to walk when he gets introduced to Peter that day. He lived this way. And what I wanted to point out here is that this is something that he had probably by now given up hope of being healed. Uh, you, you struggle with a disease or a sickness for eight years. You're just understanding, okay, okay, I'm just going to live this way probably. And he was probably in that place mentally that, that okay, this is my life, this is my lot in life, and this is where I'm going to be at. And then God's power was just unleashed on him through Peter. And so what we see here, though, is when his life, though, is that Jesus' power worked in the midst of chronic, difficult life circumstances. And so the thing that we need to understand is that if you're going through, if someone here in the room, someone watching online, if you're going through a chronic life difficulty, understand that that does not limit the power of God that is going to be shown in your life. You see, God uses the ordinary means to highlight his gospel power. God uses the, uh, the ordinary means of people to show his his, his wonderful ability. Now, I need to pause here, though. I need to say uh, what I'm not saying here. I need to make sure that I'm clarifying what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that then everyone's going to be healed. Okay? We, it, God, in His plan, sometimes has people healed, and sometimes He does not. Sometimes God uses things that confound doctors, and sometimes God uses things that the doctors know about, and God uses their abilities. So I'm not saying that if Jesus' power is going to be displayed in an ordinary person through chronic life difficulties, that that means that they have to be healed. That's just what it was for this guy. But what I am saying is that even in the midst of difficult life circumstances, it doesn't have to be health-related, we can be sure that Jesus' power is still there. He's still working because he doesn't waste anything. Everything that he does is for his glory and for our good. Our good and God's glory are not mutually exclusive. And so the first person up to, in our, uh, for consideration today is Aeneas. And God's, Jesus' power worked in the midst of this chronic, difficult life circumstances. 
Well, then, then, then Luke moves on from him and, and moves on to a person by the name of Tabitha. And this was a, a disciple. You see, we don't know much about Aeneas. He may have been a believer. He may not have been. Uh, people are divided. Scholarship is divided on this. Uh, but we know for sure that Tabitha was. We know that she was a believer, a disciple of Jesus Christ. Luke is very clear about that in his description of her. Uh, you might be wondering when, the, when he was reading, when Josh was reading the text, when you were seeing it in verse 36, you might be wondering, why is it that she's named Tabitha, then which is translated, which means Dorcas, why did he do that? Well, because uh, during that time and in this area, uh, people usually had two names. You know, one would have been more the Hebraic name, uh, name, the other one would have been a Greek name. And so this is the Greek name here. And so uh, the fact that Luke is explaining this to Theophilus tells us a little about what Theophilus would have understood. And so he, that's the reason for the two names. One is just the, the translation of the other. The interesting, what they both mean, Dorcas and Tabitha, they both mean gazelle, okay? They both, that's, that's what they mean in their, in their respective languages. And, it, it, and this was someone who was a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. Notice how she's described by Luke. It says that she was, this is verse 36, she was full of good works and acts of charity, Later on, we're going to see that it was probably she had a very specific ministry to widows. It was because the widows are the ones that were mourning her death. They were standing there. And I don't know if you remember in verse 39, it says that they, they were showing the tunics and the other garments that she had made when she was with them. And the way that's written in the original language means that it probably means that they were wearing them and they were showing them off. And so all the clothing that Tabitha had made for the widows, they were showing off. They brought them to her funeral, basically. They wore them to her funeral and said, do you remember when she made this beautiful dress? And so she was a seamstress. She was someone who was using her God-given talents and abilities to serve other people, particularly looking after the widows. This is this lady, Tabitha. She's a disciple of Jesus Christ. But God's power, Jesus' power, is working through her as well and through a, just a quiet, faithful ministry, and then even in her death. You see, there's, we don't know much about her other than this. We just know that at her death, uh, they were mourning the impact that she had. We know that Luke, setting the scene, says that she was full of good works of charity, meaning that she was looking out for the less fortunate, for the poor. And so it was just this quiet, faithful ministry. But yet, 2,000 years later, we're talking about her. 2,000 years later, this was used as an example. This was something that that, that, the the Spirit of God prompted Luke to record for us so that we would understand how the gospel was unfolding, this powerful unfolding of the gospel message across the world. I mean, have you considered the fact that 2,000 years later, we're still talking about a guy that died so many years ago? He had a very short-lived ministry on this, on this earth. He was, he was only ministering for about three years on this earth, or around that time, around three years or so while on this earth, and then he died. But then he rose again. And we're still talking about him. The impact that Jesus has had has just been, it, it's incalculable. And part of that, part of the proof of this, part of the reason that we can have confidence in this, Luke says, is because of 
a lady's quiet, faithful ministry and the impact that she had on so many people. And then Peter comes in and raises her from the dead. It's an amazing thing, what God uses, what Jesus uses to show his power. So we've seen Aeneas, we've seen uh, Tabitha, but then there's, there's also a couple other people here. It says that the disciples in Joppa, they, they heard um, that Peter was there, so they sent two men. And so we could say uh, uh, the disciples, they're unnamed, and these two men, and we don't know anything about these guys. Um, we just know that the disciples in Joppa heard that Paul was in Lydia and told two guys to travel 11 miles on foot to go over there and try to convince Peter to come back. That's all we know, other than the fact that they did it. These two guys went and they, they walked 11 miles one way to try to convince Peter to come back, and then they would have to walk another 11 miles another way. So it was probably a solid one day's walk, uh, maybe even longer, to, to get to uh, 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 where uh, Tabitha was laying in the upper room. And so if we looked at Tabitha and we saw how God's power, Jesus' power worked through her quiet, faithful ministry, we can look at these two guys and we can see how Jesus' power worked through the faith of the disciples, these unnamed disciples, and the willingness of these two nameless men. Now, I'm just trying to point this out, is that, that all of these are important pieces to the puzzle, to the narrative that Luke is setting up. This is his defense of the ministry of Jesus Christ, the expansion of the gospel. And part of what he's including in that are nameless people walking 11 miles one way to convince an apostle to come back. And so the point is this, is that it's not about grand gestures always. God uses not just the healing, and we're going to talk about the healings, and we're going to talk about that in a second here when we get to Peter, but he uses this, this everyday life decisions to quietly, faithfully follow Jesus Christ. And so that's my plea to you right now. Let me just pause as, I, as I'm going through these, these people in the text. Let me just encourage you. You're quiet every day following Jesus Christ, reading your Bible every day just for a few minutes, praying every day, trying to live kindly with each other. You, you know, we, we, we often don't even really think much about that, but, but that has huge impact on the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in your home, getting along with each other. This is not just couples getting along with each other. This is children getting along with each other, children who claim to know Jesus Christ. The, the, the gospel should be changing us. And, 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 and this, is, this is a proof of the gospel expansion and having influence because the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just an academic exercise. It's not just something for you to intellectually understand and then say, okay, yeah, that makes sense to me. It's never designed for that. It's designed to change our lives. And here we have two guys that were just told to say, hey, go get Peter, and they did. And that was a huge part of what is going to happen here. And so those small daily decisions that you make to follow the command of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, but be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. That decision to be kind to the people in your home in your workplace, your neighborhood, 
That's part of the gospel at work and the expansion work. Now, again, I'm not saying that that is giving the gospel to people. That's illustrating the gospel. But my point is this, is that even these small decisions that we make, and I'm just picking on kindness as just an example. We could talk about truth-telling. We could talk about integrity. We could talk about integrity in your workplace, integrity in taxes. Tax season's coming up, right? Okay, all right. Uh, Integrity there. All those things show that Jesus Christ's power is actively at work. When you know you can cheat and get more money back, and yet you say, no, I'm not going to, you know that you're not going to get caught, but you say, no, it doesn't matter because my Savior tells me to have integrity. See, those are the moments where Jesus' power is at work in everyday life. And we see this here. We see this here with these people here. Jesus' power is most brilliantly displayed to relatively unknown people. Heaven is going to be filled with stories of how God worked through people who did not have a large public ministry. Ordinary people like you and like me. There's two other people we want to talk about in this first point here. This, this next one is Simon the Tanner. We're just briefly introduced to him here. In the very last, it says in verse 43, it says, and he stayed in Joppa for many days. Talking about Peter um, with one Simon, a Tanner. All right. And uh, uh, we're going to find out more, a little bit more about him in the next chapter. Uh, it's going to be in his house where Peter is going to receive a vision that's going to change the course of missionary endeavors and uh, during that first century there. But uh, here, Luke just kind of introduces him to him. And, they, and that, there could be several reasons for it. But I just want to point out here that the thing we need to know about Simon the Tanner, and we'll talk probably more a little bit next week about it, but is that he was a social outcast. You have to understand that about him. And, and the reason why, it was because of his job. Uh, the Jews would have despised him because of his perpetual state of uncleanliness due to constantly coming in contact with dead bodies, dead animals. The Gentiles would have despised him because of his business, because it was a nasty-smelling business. I mean, you, you read all the ancient literature on this, and everyone, to a T, says this was a pugnant occupation. Yeah, I, I, there was a time when I was finishing up uh, my, my, well, my first senior year of college. I'll let you think about that. My first senior year of college, I, uh, I was uh, driving down to Rockford uh, every, uh, from Watertown to Rockford uh, every, uh, every weekend. Uh, then on Wednesday nights as well, to, I was hired by a church to be a youth pastor there while I was finishing up college. And so I was driving, making that drive every weekend back and forth. And I would always have to go through Jefferson. Okay, Jefferson, Wisconsin. Many of you are familiar with Jefferson, Wisconsin. There's, there's a business in Jefferson, Wisconsin, and it's the Friskies cat food plant. Okay, I don't know if you've ever driven through there when that place is going, but you know it's going because it just reeks. My brother, he worked for a company that... Uh, uh, was an industrial supply company, and he told me that he would go into that business from time to time to, to service machines or whatever, gift parts and things like that, and product. And he said, it was just nasty in there. The, the smell was just terrible walking in there. And it would be one of those things where, you know, they were, they were covering their, their faces before it was cool, right? Okay, and so uh, it was just because of the smell was so bad. And so when I'm thinking about Simon the Tanner here in his business, that's ex- exactly where my 
my mind went to. It just was terrible. Or if you've ever driven by a turkey farm, okay, or something like that, you just know, okay, it's there. So the Gentiles they, around that area, they, in fact, they had city ordinances that his house, his business, couldn't be within the actual city proper limits. It had to be outside the city because it smelled so bad. And so he was off by the seaside there, probably because he needed the water for his business, but also because they didn't like him. They didn't want him around there. So on the one hand, you have the Jews in the area saying, we don't want anything to do with you because you're unclean. You're dealing with dead animal bodies all the time. You're unclean all the time. In fact, the rabbis, uh, uh, rabbinical writings of the era, they have a writing where they said that you should not, could not read the Torah in the midst of a tannery, okay? Because it would have made it unclean. And so this is how bad they took this. And so here we have Simon the Tanner who was an outcast. He, as I said, he had to live outside the city. And yet him being the outcast, his clothes always smelled. I, I, yeah, I remember working jobs where I come home. I worked at a fiberglass plant. I worked at uh, uh, fast food. And I remember in college coming home. And, you know, you're a college student. You don't think you need to wash your clothes all the time, right? Okay, you're saving money. You only have so many quarters, right? And so I wouldn't wash my uniform all the time until my roommate one time was like, hey, brother, you, you got to do something about this uniform. It reeks bad, right? Okay. And so this is how this guy was. And yet he's the one, he's the one that goes to the apostle Peter and says, you want to stay with me? What's mine is yours. He shows hospitality. The guy who's the social outcast, the guy who people wouldn't normally want to be around at all. He's the one. He's the one that says, hey, would you stay with me? You need a place to stay. Hey, what's mine is yours. And so we see Jesus' power being worked through a social outcast, his willingness to be hospitable. It was going to be here. We're going to see next week where just this monumental event is going to take place. And it was all because this social outcast, he didn't, he didn't let other people's view of him hinder him from doing what God had asked him to do. We could trace, and we don't have time in our study because we're doing a kind of a high view of Acts as we're going through this, but we could trace how many times hospitality shows up in the book of Acts. If you want to make that study, boy, that would be a great study for you to do. Trace hospitality throughout the book of Acts. That's what God asks us to do. Encourage others, meet other people's needs. And here, he didn't let the fact that he didn't have the best house in town keep him from being hospitable. So let me encourage you. Have people over. Well, when it gets normal, I guess, or whenever everyone make those decisions and, you know, individuals and all that stuff with what's going on in the world today and everything. But that should be a natural part of us under, most, under normal circumstances that we have people over and that we're getting together with people. Then we have one, one last person, Simon Peter. I saved him for last because, he, I mean, obviously he's the one doing the work here and stuff like that. When we come to Peter, as we look at how Jesus' power lived on through these ordinary means of people, we have to stop and be amazed at Peter's character development here. And, 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 you know, I, we could really uh, look at the difference of Peter, and that, 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 that would be a good study in itself. But let me just give you two examples of Peter's character development. 
Uh, he once was prejudiced. In fact, I mentioned last week how Galatians chapters 1 and 2 fit in between 9, 22, and 23 of our text here, uh, of last week's text. And so there was, a, there was this three-year period or so about when... Um, uh, uh, Paul goes to, Saul goes to Arabia, and then he's recording that in Galatians. He also records that there was a time where he has to confront Peter because Peter was showing prejudice against uh, 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 Gentiles. And, 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 and then we saw this earlier in, 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 when Jesus was having his earthly ministry, we saw this. And so he goes from that, from not being willing to eat with people that were Gentiles, to staying in a tanner's house, okay? He goes from being prejudiced against people to saying, no, I'm going to live with this guy now. There's a character development that is, is underneath the story here that we're seeing. And the only thing that causes that is Jesus Christ. The only thing that causes that is the power of Jesus Christ. And so that, these are the sub-reasons that Luke has given Theophilus, saying, look at these people and see their character development in them. He once was overconfident with his own power. He says, I will never deny you to Jesus. And then, of course, he denied him three times. And now he is completely depending on Jesus. How do I know that? Because in verse 34, when Peter heals Ananias, he says, Jesus Christ heals you. Then in, with Tabitha in uh, verse 40, but Peter put them all outside and he knelt down and prayed. And so this was something where he shows, he knows that he's dependent upon God and, and, and that Jesus' power has to be done at work. And so we see this character development of him. We could take a long time to mine out all the examples of how Peter, uh, he developed. But those two examples are just enough to get you thinking for right now. Let me give you uh, your first homework assignment. Normally I save these for the end, okay? But here's your first homework assignment for the day. Compare and contrast Peter in the Gospels with Peter in Acts. And then if you want, you can also bring in Peter from his epistles, First and Second Peter as well. See the difference that you have there. That might be a good study for you to do. So if you're like, hey, I don't know what to read from my Bible this week. I don't really have a plan. Here you go. All right, what a coincidence. It's right here, okay? So just, just compare Peter in the Gospels with Peter in Acts, okay? So, but, but what is he doing now? What does Peter do? Notice the first thing in verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, I mean, he's not content to sit in Jerusalem. He's not content just to stay put. He says, man, I got to go visit these churches. I got to go see how these Christians are doing. That is something that, that Peter is, he's, he's, he's not just concerned about himself anymore. He's not just concerned about his own agenda. He's going to see other people and how they're doing. He wasn't content to be in one spot. He moved around ministering just like Jesus did when he was on the earth. And we also see that he was healing, of course. That's what these two examples are about, the first one by Aeneas. Much has been written about how this healing here is very similar to when Jesus healed uh, uh, the paralytic in Capernaum. You remember when they opened the roof up and they let the person down and, and, and Jesus is there teaching and, and uh, all of a sudden in the midst of his teaching, the, the roof starts, you know, uh, they hear noises and things start falling down. They're tearing the roof apart. And then and the friends, they take their friend who's paralytic and they, he's lying on a mat and, and they lower him down with ropes and then Jesus heals the man there. And a lot has been written about the, how the, this very 
uh, close in similarity of what Peter said to what Jesus said. It's almost like Peter was imitating what Jesus said during that time here. And then rising from the dead in this next one with, with Tabitha being risen uh, from the dead here. Um, I think uh, everyone, uh, every scholar I read on this pointed out the exact same thing. It's this. Did you notice in verse 40, he puts them all outside, okay, this is like when Jesus healed Jairus' daughter, okay? He puts everyone outside, but yet he let Peter and I think John uh, stay in there as well. So those were the only ones, but Jesus asked everyone to leave, and then he heals this lady, uh, Jairus' daughter. But verse 40 says, he prayed, turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Every scholar pointed out that, that he would have been speaking Aramaic, most likely, Jesus would have most likely been speaking Aramaic. And the words recorded for Jesus saying to raise Jairus' daughter and what Peter said is different by one letter, okay? One letter difference, that's it. And, and so what, it's almost like what Peter's doing is he's just remembering what Jesus did and he's trying to imitate that in a sense of saying, this is what you want me to do. And so I'm just going to do what Jesus, I'm not going to go out on my own on this. I'm not going to be on my own, I'm a lone ranger on this. There's an evidence of character development in Peter. He says, listen, I'm just going to do what Jesus says. I'm just going to do what he does. I'm not going to go rogue on this here. Uh, Peter knows that he's not healing people in his own power. He knows where the power comes from, and that's a consistent thing in this text and in the book of Acts. I like how Professor of New Testament, F. Scott Spencer, he puts it, he said this, uh, Peter makes it clear that he is simply a broker. I love how he used that word, a broker for Jesus, the true enabler. It's not so much that Peter heals in intimidation of Jesus as that Jesus himself continues to heal through Peter. And so what we have here is we have that Jesus' power lives on through Peter's spiritual maturation progress. And so what I've done, I've taken the bulk of the, the message, the front part, we front-loaded it, we have two points today and that's it, the, the, is talking about how God is working through ordinary means. And it's not just one way. Did you see this? It's through chronic difficult circumstances like Aeneas. It's through quiet, faithful ministry like Tabitha. It's through faith and willingness like the unknown disciples and unnamed men. It's like, it's like through the social outcast willingness to be hospitable like Simon the Tanner. And it's through like his, Jesus' powers on display through a stumbling but maturing servant like Simon Peter. And so we just see God's doing and showing his power through ordinary means. But I, show, but I said that we see the ordinary and the unordinary, that the common and the uncommon in this text. And so in the last just few minutes that we have here, let's talk about this. But before I do that, there's another homework assignment, apparently. Um, and that is consider how Jesus' power is living on through you. Consider how Jesus' power is living on through you. If, if his primary means is to work through ordinary people, how is it that Jesus' power is at work in you? And again, I'm not saying that in order, and the, the whole point of this isn't that we're the ones that raise people from the dead and all that stuff. That, 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 that's not it. That, the point is, is the faithful, quiet ministry and following Jesus Christ. So how is that in display? You know, think about that. Okay, secondly, Jesus' power through uncommon means miracles. 
Uh, I just want to, I, I thought it was important that we just have a, a brief, a short discussion on miracles here so we can have a good understanding of that. What was the purpose of these miracles? Why did, should we expect that these miracles happen today? Should we uh, uh, expect that we do these miracles? Uh, these are questions that raise our, our, our uh, people debate. Another question is, um, if God doesn't heal me from my sickness, does that mean that I've sinned against him? Or does that mean that I've done something wrong? These are questions people wrestle with because we have examples of this person being healed and we have other people that we love and know that long to be healed and they're not. Well, I'll say this, is that I put it under this idea of uncommon means for a reason because if you look at the New Testament, miracles are actually very uncommon. Uh, we tend to think of them as being much more common than they are. If you look at the expanse of Jesus' ministry and you try to pinpoint all these times where he raised people from the dead and stuff like that, it actually was fairly uncommon. Uh, it wasn't something that it, was, it seems that he did every day. I mean, he ministered for three years on this earth, and when you look at the Gospels, you only have a handful of examples of that. It seems that it was much more the mundane, everyday things, but there was times, and there are times, where God used miracles for specific reasons. And when we understand those reasons, I think we'll understand uh, whether or not we should expect them, and I'll just, you know, sh uh, you know, save you from wondering. I will say this. I think God can do miracles today, but should we expect him to do it? I don't think so. But can he? Absolutely. Does he? I believe so. But should that be the expectation? I don't believe so. And here's the reason why. Because of what miracles were for. First of all, miracles were used to authenticate, okay? That's what's happening here. Uh, and authentication was one of Jesus' reasons for his select use of miraculous power during his earthly ministry. It was to show that he was truly the Son of God. And he used it very sparingly. John says this in John chapter 20 and 21. He says, okay, these things were done so that you may believe. But again, it was used sparingly. In Acts, we see these things happening at crucial points in the gospel expansion ministry, when a new group of people was being added into the plan of the gospel unfolding, that's when you see these miracles popping up. And the reason is, is because it has to authenticate what is truly happening is from God. It's not just the apostles going rogue. This is the reason why we, Luke brings Peter back into the narrative. We've been talking about Paul, and all of a sudden, and we're going to go back to Paul here in the end of chapter 11. And so, but, but why, did, uh, why, why talk about Peter? Because a crucial thing is going to happen in chapter 10 that we need to be sure, Theophilus need to be sure, that Peter wasn't thinking just some crazy thoughts, and then now we've got to follow this guy. No, Jesus worked powerfully through him in a miraculous way to show him to show people, this is from me. What he's saying is true. He's going to have a dream in this next chapter, and he's going to be perplexed about it, and he's going to interpret that dream, and it's going to be interpreted. And so we needed to, it's Theophilus, and we, we needed some evidence that Peter is still listening to God well, and by being able to raise the dead and being able to heal people, what Jesus is saying there is saying, He's doing my work. Listen to him. So it's meant to authenticate. This is what Jesus did, and this is what Peter's doing. Luke reaffirms Peter's credibility to properly interpret God's plan and will because a much harder to accept concept and change is coming, as I've alluded to. So first of all, they're meant to authenticate. 
So that's the reason why they're there. Secondly, they were also used to illustrate. Uh, Jesus used miracles to point to greater problems than what appeared on the surface. Uh, Most of his miracles were helping people's physical needs. Uh, Food, like the feeding of the 5,000. Fear, like when he walked on the water. Healing, like Jairus' daughter I talked about earlier. Bringing back the dead, like in Lazarus' case. But it was never just about the physical needs. Go back and look at the text. There was always about some spiritual need as well. His miracles illustrated how he had the answers to spiritual needs. Do you remember when, when, he, when he was healing the one, he says, you know, uh, your sins are forgiven you. He says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or rise, take up your bed and walk? He says, but so you know that the, the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, take your bed and walk. You see, it was an illustration of saying that, first of all, it was an authentication, but it was an illustration of saying that you have a greater need of, uh, uh, than the fact that you can't walk. You have a greater need, and that is your sin need. And, and you need forgiveness of sins, and I can give that to you. But you don't believe that I can give that to you, and so what I'm going to show you is that I have the power to, do your, to, to meet your physical needs, so now you know. Now you know that all your spiritual needs can be met in me. So he's illustrating. He's illustrating the fact that there's a much deeper problem and need that we have and that Jesus is the answer to this. And so here we see that one of the reasons for miracles is this, is that illustrating work of what Jesus was doing is much deeper than that. And so even in this text here, we see that it could be used with Ananias or, or, or Ananias, excuse me, to uh, uh, to see his weakness there and to see the weakness of the sinful condition there. But we see that other people saw that for sure because verse 35 says, and they turned to the Lord. In Tabitha's situation, we know that people made the connection to the spiritual needs as well because it says many believed in the Lord there. So there was a spiritual connection there. So miracles are used to uh, um, authenticate, to illustrate, but then finally to anticipate. Have you ever noticed that Jesus' use of miracles were never just grand displays of raw power? Have you ever noticed that? It, It wasn't like him just flexing his muscles to impress. You remember uh, It's a Wonderful Life? And George Bailey is walking with uh, the girl, whatever her name is. I can't remember her name. Uh, someone can help me, whatever her name is. What? Mary. Mary. Thank you. Yeah, I knew it was Mary. So walking with Mary. And what does he say? He looks up and sees in the sky the moon. What does he say? He says, I'll lasso the moon to you. I'll lasso, I'll bring it down to you, right? You know, I mean, that serves no purpose, right? You know, it would be just a raw display of power, you know. And, of course, we understand that what he was actually saying there. But, but the point is this, is that Jesus never did that. He never was like, you know, yeah, I'm going to show you that I've got all the power. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm I'm to take the sun and I'm going I'm to grab it with my hand. And I'm going to dribble around like a basketball. Then I'm going to put it back up there, you know. He's, those are the type of miracles he did. It wasn't like you remember in Aladdin, you know, Aladdin's trying to impress uh, the, the lady, whatever her name is there, uh, um, uh, Jasmine, okay? <laughs> People think I hate ladies. Okay, um, you know, so, 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 so they're, they're, they're uh, um, um, you know, what does he say? He says, you know, I'm going to take you on a magic carpet ride. I'll show you the world, to impress her and to wow her. And he gets on the magic carpet and takes her all over the world and just shows her. Those are the type of miracles Jesus did. 
Jesus didn't just like say, well, let's get in a time machine. I'll just take you all over the place. I'll take you to the future. You can see what it's going to be like. That's, that's not what he did. Why? Because his goal wasn't to impress people. That wasn't the purpose of miracles. It was to show that he was bringing eternity. He was fulfilling what was going to be true completely in eternity. He was showing that it was going to happen. How do I know this? Well, Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35. Um, go ahead and turn there. Go ahead and turn there real quickly. Isaiah 35. Just go back in the last couple of minutes we have here. Isaiah 35. If you're using one of the Bibles you uh, uh, picked up on the way in, is page 595. So, Isaiah 35, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Isaiah 35, 1 through 10. It says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like a crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Okay, let me, let me just stop for a second here and explain what, what's going on here. What, what's going on here is that this is about when the Messiah comes. This is about what they're waiting for, when all things are set right, okay? This is, this is when uh, th- this, this, this uh, idea of what the world will be like when all is restored, okay? It says, The glory of Lebanon, verse 2, shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have anxious hearts, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And burning sand shall become a pool. And the thirsty ground springs of water. In the hunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass will become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. And the unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. But they shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I don't know if you noticed, it's on the screen now, but there we have um, in uh, verses 5 and 6, it says, The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer in the tongue of the mute, so sing for joy. Now, why is this text important? Remember, later on, years later, John the Baptist is on the scene, and he's telling everyone, hey, prepare the way. The, the Messiah, the Lamb of God is here. And he's saying, this has happened, right? Okay. And so, and so he's excited about this, and people start following things like this. But then John the Baptist gets arrested. He gets thrown in prison. And he's there for a few days, and he's, and he, he's waiting, he's looking, he's, he's trying to figure this out because he knows that when the Messiah comes that all these great things are going to happen. He's like, why am I in prison? So in Matthew, it says, in Matthew chapter 11, it says that he sends word to Jesus, and he says, hey, uh, you're the one, right? Or are we supposed to be waiting for someone else? 
Do you remember Jesus' response? In Matthew chapter 11, he says this, and Jesus answered them, go tell John that what you hear and see, the blind receive their sight. The lame walk, leopards are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What text did Jesus have in mind there? The same text that John the Baptist had in mind. And so he says, my miracles here, you, you can be confident that I'm the one. You be confident in my power because Isaiah 35 is being, being fulfilled right now. That's the reason he did miracles. It wasn't just to show his power. It wasn't just to show that he had bigger muscles. It wasn't just to show that he was in control. It was to say, listen, it's coming. A day is coming where all things will be set right, and I'm just giving you the, 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 the appetizer of it right now. One day all will be put back to order, and miracles won't be needed. So miracles, they're not so much, as I read one person say this week, he said, miracles aren't so much a suspension of natural order that we think of, but they're really a restoration of natural order. It's putting all things back. And Jesus used his miracles to show us that. And here, this is the same thing. This is the reason why Peter was doing these to authenticate, to illustrate, and to anticipate that Jesus is coming back and will set all things correct. So can God use miracles today? Yes. Should we expect him to do miracles today? Probably not. It was actually a very small part of his earthly ministry. And when we see the purpose of them, it, most contexts are not necessary. However, I'm not going to put God in a box. Do miracles happen today? I believe so. And they have the same purpose, to authenticate the power of Jesus, to illustrate deeper problems we need to be solved and anticipate the future. So here's the last homework assignment. Discuss with a family member, friend, a small group, which of Jesus' miracles you would have loved to be present for and why. So think of all the miracles and say, which one would you want to be there for? Maybe that could be a good lunch discussion or, or evening discussion or something, small group discussion, whatever. It's like, you know, which of the miracles that you know that Jesus did, would you want to be there and why? And just think about what was being accomplished in those miracles. So I need to bring this to a conclusion. We have the Lord's Supper today. So in conclusion, here's what I hope you go home with today. I hope you're encouraged by the reminder that Jesus' power is seen through ordinary means namely people. We should see Jesus' power in the church because the church is a gathering of ordinary people. So I, I pray, one of my, my desires and my prayers for this sermon today was that you would walk away thinking, you know, I, I'm just so grateful that God uses ordinary people. And it's not, he's not asking me to change the world through grand gestures. It's just simple, everyday, faithful living. I hope you're motivated to worship the God of miracles. I hope understanding the restraint that Jesus used. It wasn't just raw displays of power, but they had purpose to him. He could do anything he wanted, and he used him very efficiently. I hope that causes you to worship him just a bit more today. I hope you're longing and looking forward to eternity. It's a little bit better. After looking at this text and the purpose of miracles, I hope that heaven and the, the beauty of heaven and the glory of it that is going to be revealed to us I hope that that's encouraging to the today. I hope you're looking forward to it.